I'm a short-term thinker. I see the problems that are happening over the next few months, and I am solving those, those challenges right now. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, another episode of the Profitable Property Management Show. Today we have Stephen Pete here on the show. Guys, thanks for coming through. Thanks for having us, man. Thanks, Jordan. All the way up from Houston. So those watching at home may have heard of Empire. You guys do some speaking. You're kind of known in the industry. For those that don't know, how long have you guys been in business for, and what does the operation look like? So uh, officially, I'll say we've been in business since December of 2012. And the reason why I use that is we were actually managing properties before that, but we didn't really know what we were doing. And we were still working full time. Steve was still flying a full schedule and I was still working full time. December 1 of 2012, mm -hmm. I burned the boat, quit my job. And so that's when we say Empire is official. I'm from New York City, Empire. It was just built more as a, I say as a goof, but it's just like, hey, let's just create an LLC just so that we can manage our own properties. Our goal was 500 properties that he and I were gonna own. And uh, a year later, we're managing 67 properties and we only own 35. And I started, hey, Steve, why are we, what are all these other properties? Oh, well, so-and-so needed help and so-and-so needed help. And the eternal salesperson. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we can do that. And so <laughs> we, we realized at the, by, at the end, at the end of, near the end of the year, we're like, you know, there's actually, we can actually help more people and there's actually more money in actually doing the management company than there is in, in buying the real estate, uh, especially the type of real estate we were buying, which is a whole other podcast. And so that's, that's when we created the company. So we started in, in December 2012. So you're coming back into it. Yeah, we. This it was one of those things. Yeah, it, it was yeah. It was built out of necessity. It was built out of our own necessity to basically stop ourselves from sinking and put some structure into the properties that we owned. And as we started doing that, you know, at first we were running it off of emotions. We weren't running it like a business. Um, we were doing everything that we we knew what to do, but we weren't doing it because we were too emotionally close and we couldn't remove ourselves from thinking correctly. And basically we got to a point uh, with Pete and I at, with these properties, it was like, okay, we have three choices. One choice is we sell them all. Well, as Pete said, that was in 2009. No one's getting a loan. The other option is we hand them over to a management company. The third option was we self-manage them. So we knew we couldn't sell them. We went to some management companies and Pete, Pete and I had this discussion and we had owned an apartment complex and Pete had three apartment complexes before so we knew what to do, we just weren't doing it. And Pete says, hey, well, I, know, I know some management companies, let me make some calls, let me see what I can do and I'll get back to you like in a week. So he goes and makes these calls and a week later he calls me back, he's like, we got a problem. I'm like, did we buy another one and we didn't realize or what's the other problem? He says, nobody will take them. I'm like, what do you mean nobody will take them? He goes, nobody wants the properties because they're low end and they say they're too much work and we'll never figure this out. And basically we're doomed. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. He's like, I'm not. He's like, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. So you were the guys that people don't want to see at their door. You, you were guys, you were the poster children for the people that say, don't manage that property. We were those guys. Don't take that we, door. Absolutely. We, we, you name it. And we didn't want to give the security deposits up. If somebody would take it, we yeah. were going to give the security. You're going to do your own maintenance. Yeah. 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 We have our own maintenance guys. Yeah. We, we were like the worst clients ever. Yeah. And they were like, well, and they were saying like, okay, well, we're going to need, because these are low income, we need like three months of reserve. And we're like, 
we don't even have a month of reserve. Like, we're, we're like already, how's we're that going to happen? Negative we could put ourselves out of business faster than you can, you know? So it's like, that's not going to work. So we realized that was just not an option. So right. the third option was, okay, self-manage. So he and I really sat down. Build, and we, a, build a better mousetrap. Build a better mousetrap for ourselves and self-preservation. And so we sat down and we said, okay, if we owned a company and we removed ourselves from it, how would we want that company to run? Well, Pete's from the IT background. I'm from an airline pilot industry. So I'm thinking, okay, we can create the structure. We're obviously not the smartest guys in the world because we didn't make smart decisions, but we're not the dumbest and we can figure this out. So for about six months, we sat down and we kind of plumbed the company of what we thought it should look like from an investor's perspective, from our perspective, because we own the properties, mm -hmm. not from the uh, perspective of how we can monetize it. So that's how we kind of created these systems and structures. And the biggest thing we told ourselves was, okay, if we do this and we go forward, we have to stick to our policies and procedures. If a tenant doesn't pay, we have to follow the procedure and we got to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And that was tough because we kicked out about 70% of our deadbeat tenants. All at once. Uh, it was within about six, months, six months. months. I mean, wow. we were like, you're not paying, you're gone. You're... So of course we're writing the checks. To, to keep everything afloat. Right. But we're saying, you know what, we've got to stay true to what we said. We've got it. We have to remove our emotions and our fear out of it. And it ended up, I mean, look, at the end of the day, they weren't paying anyways. They were just taking up air uh, in the houses. So they didn't, it's not like we lost a bunch of revenue. We weren't getting the revenue anyways. So we actually were able to stabilize the properties with better people. And they never actually made us money, but they stopped bleeding us to death, essentially, mm -hmm. by us putting that structure. And that's when we had other people that we knew in the industry, in the investing clubs. They said, hey, what, what did you guys do? You know, we thought you guys were you know, basically circling the toilet. And uh, we said, well, we started running like a business. We took our emotions out of it and we put some structure and procedures and they were like, that's the same problem I'm having. Could you manage our houses? <laughs> the challenge we had was though, like when you're in a sandbox, you're playing with the same people in the same sandbox. So we were getting the same type of properties mm -hmm. that we were that we were right. managing. So we were the low income property managers for for a couple of years. Ghetto kings, we called ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the first things that we, though, that we did though is Steve and I used to basically a tenant would call Steve, then a tenant would call me, and Steve would call back the tenant, tell him something. I'd call back the tenant and tell him something. It's like Keystone Cops. We had yeah, no yeah, we had so. no structure whatsoever. And so we were stepping on each other's toes all the time. So the first thing we actually did is we actually created an org chart. And we said, okay, who's doing what? And literally Pete or Steve would be in every box. But we realized that two people couldn't be in the same box. Right. Right. Just chaos ensues when you do that. And so that was the first thing we did. So when he got a call from a tenant, if it wasn't his job, he's like, you got to call Pete. We didn't have a phone system back then. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. So it was just like everybody had our cell phones, which is always fun. Mm -hmm. you know, when all your tenants, 67 tenants have your That's cell phones. That's a joy. That's yeah. a joy. Yeah. And so today where we are... You know, um, we, we don't we we don't own those properties anymore, except for one, right? Yeah. Which is a decent one or property. Two, yeah. One or two. Uh, we still have a few properties, but we we kind of got rid of the low income stuff. We still manage some of them because we still bought them. We still sold them to to investors that we said we'll we'll manage for them. Mm -hmm. So we still manage a few. Of some them. we owner financed out. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. so we we did some so two investors, and so we we did some because people couldn't get loans. We thought, okay, how how could we get rid of these deals? How do we get out of them? How do we get out of them? So at the time. Um, you know, if anyone ever follows the, the, the dollar, right, at the time, the, the Canadian dollar was much stronger than the U.S. dollar because oil was going so well in Canada. And because of that, there was a lot of Canadian investors that were coming down and they were buying these tax lien properties and other things. So we had a lot of Canadians that were buying properties and giving them to us, but they can't get loans in the U.S. 
So we started talking to some of them and they were like, hey, could, could we get some of those properties? And we said, well, we'll tell you what, here's the situation. And, and we were very blunt and upfront, said this is the property, this is what you can expect, this is what we'll sell it to you at, we'll keep managing it for you as part of the deal, um, and we'll take care of it. We put the tenant in, and basically it was win-win. So they got a property in the US, we were able to get rid of it, now we own or finance it, right. and then when the call came, it wasn't our problem anymore. It was kind of their problem, and we, you know, we were very upfront with them. We had one guy; he actually <laughs> bought eleven of eleven of them from us, and Pete actually tried to talk him out of it. Pete was like, "You don't want to buy that many at one time," but he was doing a ten thirty one. He's like, "You don't understand the tax implication I'm going to get is way any losses I take, which he was wrong. He took a lot more losses because <laughs> we told him. But he he said, you know, basically he was in Washington D.C. or something like that, and he was like, "I have to do this. Like I don't have a choice. That the the tax hit I'm going to take is huge." So we sold them to him reluctantly. Pete actually, I've never heard a salesperson try to talk someone out of doing something, but Pete was trying to do the right thing and tell him. And, and to this day, we still manage his properties and he realizes he probably shouldn't have done that, but at least we were up front with him and mm -hmm. explained it to him. So where's the company at today in terms of headcount and units? So we're around 850 units. Uh, I think we have about 800 in Houston and then we're in Dallas and Fort Worth and we have about 70 there, so about 870, something like that. Uh, but we bought in 60 this month, so I don't think that's part of my count. So we might be over 900 right now. Yeah. So, so that profile, that 900 represents how many owners? 2.3 properties per owner. Okay, so skewing towards investors as opposed to accidental. You know, we do get quite a few accidental landlords, but some of them actually will turn into investors, we've noticed. That number is higher than average. 2.5 is demonstrably higher than the average of like 1.6, 1.7. Yeah. yeah. What about headcount? How big is the team? So um, we have a bigger team than the average management company per property, and the main reason why is because we spend a lot. We have a lot of uh, of our team in Mexico, and so we can get two and a half to three times as many people in Mexico that would cost us the same in in mm -hmm. Houston or Dallas. Right. So we have, um, I believe, we have twenty people in Mexico, and then we have uh, we have a management team now. So we have. Uh, four people on the management team in Houston and then we have a couple of we call them client relations specialists we don't call them property managers so we have two client relations specialists for the 800 properties in Houston and we have one in Dallas all right so I want to talk more about operations I want to talk more about the remote stuff but what is of personal interest to me because it's my show I get to talk about whatever I want I want to hear about the co-founder relationship how did you guys get in business together that's a good question so um, I, I got into the investing, my, my, my segue into real estate was after 9-11 being an airline pilot and kind of needing some other avenue in case the airline industry didn't go. And so I started learning about real estate and I started flipping properties, wholesaling them, right? I was doing option contracts and I was doing very good at it. Um, inherently I'm a good salesperson and I was doing good at that role and I was making a lot of money. And when I got a lot of money doing this, I decided I wanted to buy an apartment complex. It's kind of the grass is greener theory. I was tired of being on the treadmill of wholesaling. Right. So I wanted to take that money that I made and get an apartment complex. So I joined an investing group in Houston that specializes in helping people buy apartment complexes, which Pete was a partner in as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to find these properties and of course there's nothing can be found. There's no deals. As soon as they go, they're gone. So I finally, this 17, 16 unit complex comes up available and I get my name in and I go to get it, and it is probably as ghetto as ghetto could be in the third ward of Houston, very, very bad. Fifth ward. Fifth ward, sorry. And so I'm trying to decide, is this, a, is this something I should buy or not? Am I buying a huge problem? A lot of indicators were saying it was a problem. So they said, well, you know what? There's a guy named Pete Newbig that owns 52 units about a block from you. Why don't you go talk to him, and he can give you some perspective. So, 
so I go to this uh, 52 unit, it was 26 duplexes basically, this, mm -hmm. this thing, and complete D, I mean $375 a month rent type wow. property. I had gotten it at that point up to $525. Okay, you. sorry. <laughs> uh, so, so I show up with, with uh, myself, my wife, and I think we have like a six month old child, right? <laughs> so we show up in this thing, this property. Pete walks out, looks at me, looks at my wife, looks at my son, he goes, you should not be anywhere near here. Just get in your car and turn around and go. Do not buy that property. Mr. Family man, yeah. rolling up in the hood. Yeah, well, yeah. It was a Cadillac. Yeah. And so, so okay. So that, yeah, that I'm wearing like you know the lowest of like TG. You know, he's uh, got like G, stuff hanging G off his shirt. face. He's like in the middle of a knife fight with some tenants. I mean, he's in the heat of battle. You know, barbarian style. And so basically, he's like, this is not something you want to get into. I said, okay, no problem, thanks. So we we push on that deal. And about a month later, he. He calls me up and he's like, hey, you know. By the way, he is the constant salesman. He still wanted me to go buy his property that he was going to buy and try to talk me into saying yes, that he should buy it. I was trying and to take him. I'm like, maybe you should just come look at it. Like, maybe, you know, maybe you're not getting it. It's a free consulting. Yeah. yeah. On, maybe you're not getting the whole picture. Let us go over and take a look at it. No, it's exactly what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Do not buy it. I actually property. did take him over there, actually. That's right. So, so about a that month. I take no for an answer, man. <laughs> so, about a month later, he calls me up and he's like, hey, you know, I know you're interested. He goes, I've got a deal that I'm going to be getting into. We're looking for a fourth partner, passive role, would you be interested in getting into this deal? And it was a, it was a good 40 unit in, uh, in Spring Branch area of Houston. And I'm like, I'm like full throttle. I got money burning a hole in my, I'm a sales guy, right? Yeah, I'm in. So we meet up and uh, basically the conversation we had is he wanted to know more about the wholesaling and flipping. I wanted to know more about the buy and hold. Mm -hmm. So basically we said, hey, he says, look, you're gonna be a passive investor. I'm gonna be the lead investor. I'm gonna be running the deal. And I said, wait, I'd love to learn more about it. Would you mind if I learned some of the apartment complex world while we're owning it? And free work? Free labor? Absolutely. Yeah. So he's like, absolutely. And he's like, I'd like so to know I'm more about this. I'm sales guy, Jordan, but I got $85,000 from him to invest in the apartment OPM, complex. OPM, OPT. I got, right. I got him to work for free for me. And I got him to get me to be a partner in his wholesaling business, but he paid half my half the deal. But I'm yeah, not the sales I, guy. I think I'm the one who got sold on this whole thing from day one, actually. Um, so, so anyway, so we we get into this apartment complex deal, and we are landlocked in this apartment complex by a church on one side and a private school on the other, and it, they're doing nothing but teardowns in this whole area, building up these huge Victorian-style townhomes. So we kind of know million-dollar townhomes. Right, it was a Class C property, and the rents are much higher than what what we had in, in uh, Cashmere Gardens. Right. They were probably about 625 a month. Yeah. Yeah. About Big money. Big money. They were rolling. <laughs> so <laughs> essentially what ended up happening was is the church ended up buying the complex from us because they needed the parking lot space. So they bought it at the strike price. They put option money down. They had a conduit loan, so they couldn't. They had to, it had to go the distance, which was another two years, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So they gave us non-refundable money, but then we had a we had a deal, and they were going to pay cash because the time that they sold it was in 2007 and a half, mm -hmm. when the market was crashing. Nobody could get a loan, but they paid cash for it. So we basically got out of that time. We we're sitting there with a fistful of dollars, going, "What do we do?" This guy here says, hey, I got this great idea. I said, what's that? He goes, there's these deals out there that you can get that are super cheap, high cash flow. We can get them for $30,000, $50,000. They're going to make a lot of money, and there's a ton of them, and no one's buying them. I'm like, why just buy one? Let's buy as many as we can. 
And then now you dovetailed into the 35 properties that no one would take. Ah, so we buy about 20 it. of these in a that's, year and a half. And dogs. now we're that's, in this this tormented so now hell. We, now you're full circle. Got it. And okay. then, yeah, so that's, that's the roundabout way of how Empire evolved. Okay, so the question I have for you guys is, it sounds like your relationship was a bit more opportunistic than strategic. You guys just kind of yes. met each other from yep. this to that. It's evolved. For sure, Definitely and I think evolved. that's how a lot of partnerships happen, right? Right. It's it's less like I need I I know what I'm gonna do. I need to find this type of person. Like I need somebody that's like a high D. That's yeah. my that's my exact. Yeah. Name. It's circumstantial. Yeah. What have you guys learned in the course of the relationship? Any relationship has to involve evolve over time in yeah. order to make yeah. it keep working. What advice would you guys give to other? people that are considering doing a co-founder relationship but, but haven't done a partnership before. I, I would say, you know, Pete and I are, are probably more intertwined than our marriages right now with, with money and finances and properties and, and just so much. We, we can't get out of We can't get out of this if we try, right? I mean, so, but what I would say is anybody that wants to get into it, they've got to get clear expectations of who's doing what role. Pete and I are very lucky in the sense that we are complete opposites. He is the true integrator and I'm the true visionary. I don't know how common that is in relationships when partnerships get involved. So sure. having that relationship that we happen to fall into, basically, um, I don't think that we could have planned how he is and how I am. And, and that's been the, a, a large part of our, the major part of our success. Now, like when we go into a partnership, we're strategically looking for who we want to partner with on someone or something. So to answer your question, I would say, how does the divorce look? and start that in the beginning because no one ever thinks you're gonna get divorced. Of course. And I would say you gotta start with the end in mind and the end could be the demise of the relationship and the assets and the company. Mm -hmm. And you probably need to look at that. Now we didn't because we didn't, we kind of kept, we kind of were falling downhill so to speak. But I would say if you're gonna get into a partnership, devise how the divorce looks so that if it happens, it's not ugly. It's amicable, it's business, it's non-emotional. And that, that is probably one of the biggest things I would say. And setting up the org chart of who's doing what, I would say is huge. To know what is your role, what is my role. Not like, hey, I thought you were gonna be taking care sure. of this. I never said that, well that's what I thought. So talking more about communication, managing the ongoing sure. conversation and dialogue. I know Let me just add to that real quick. There is a book by Gino Wickman called Rocket Fuel. Mm -hmm. If you are out there and you're looking at trying to find a partner, that's a great book yeah. to read because it talks about the different personality profiles cool. of integrator versus visionary. Which is crazy to read in EOS in the original traction book where he says, if you're the visionary, be free. If you're the integrator, be stressed. Yes. I read that. Yeah, yeah, I was stressed all yes. yes. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm free. I'm like, why are you so stressed? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to speak, man. What's the big deal? Yeah, exactly. So the, let's talk about the communication cadence, though. There's a lot of conversations that just aren't had, and the, the absence of the conversation means that there is no possibility or hope for resolution because we're just not talking about it. How do you guys manage frustration and friction that comes up? Like how do you keep open, open channels of communication? Sure, so um, luckily we've had a business coach since 2012. And so what we found is that Steve and I, about every four to five months, we just cannot speak to each other. Like we just are ready to just, I know when he's giving me one word text messages, that's when I know he's really upset <laughs> and he doesn't want to speak to me or he doesn't answer my phone call because he always has like, 40 line text messages, I'm the one word text message guy, right? So luckily over the last few years, our business coach has been kind of the, 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 mediator, the mediator. He's our marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that we do is we actually, our wives are part of the board of directors. 
and work with our wives get along. Uh, and so we have monthly meetings with our wives as well. So when things are wow, yeah. when things are starting to get askew with Steve and I, you know, we have another meeting. And what we've done recently, because we, we understand this, and we understand that, you know, we think so differently. Not that there's one wrong way or one or one right way, but it's just different. And it's where what is the business? What does the business need to think of and do right now to, to be successful? And so we realize that. And what we found is when we communicate on a weekly basis, like coming up here to Austin, right? It allows us to get four or five hours in the vehicle. When we communicate on a weekly basis, we find that uh, all the other stuff doesn't bubble up, right? And so we're, we're, we have a much better understanding of where we're coming from. All right, alarm is off. Back where we were talking about co-founder situations. One yeah. of the things that I wanted to ask you guys was operating agreements. When we look at the business, there are three distinct functions. You got the operator, you got governance, and you got the, the equity holder. As operators, we tend to only wear that hat and think right. less about the other two. The reality is operating agreements get stale over time. They mm -hmm. need to be updated. Right. Have you guys gone back and revisited your operating agreement from when you first founded? We did two years ago when we brought in a third uh, minor partner. Mm -hmm. And so we, re we revamped the operating agreement at that point. Yeah. But we don't look at it yearly, and we probably need to do a better job of that. Yeah. And, and the one thing I'll say, Pete was talking earlier about the, the – um, the relationship that we have. The one thing that Pete and I do a very good job of and that I would advise people that they should do is we always put the company first. It's never our ego or our emotions. We always say what's best for the company. At the end of the day, if, if we can't eat because the company can't feed the employees, the mm -hmm. employees will eat first. Mm -hmm. So we always try to think of what is the best thing for the company, not what's the best thing for Steve or what's the best thing for Steve and Pete. It's always what is the best thing for Empire and how, you know, and, and can we take care of the team and the employees? Because, you know, we have, you know, what, let, let's just say 30 employees, we've got realtors. You know, we have quite a few people, let's just say 30 people, families, they need to eat that are depending on their paychecks based on the vision that we sold them. We sold them on a concept mm -hmm. and a vision. Yeah. They're expecting us to deliver and that's what we're trying to do. And if, if we lead them the wrong way, you know, a lot of the biggest challenge I think with a lot of operators is they think if they operate more and better that everything else should happen. Like if I build it, they will come. And that's mm -hmm. not really true. You have to be a good visionary and you have to inspire your team to do the work, but they're doing that based on your vision. And if you don't have that, and you don't put the company first and explain that to them, you're gonna get, you're, you're gonna get the people you deserve, which are people that don't really care about your company, which aren't gonna do a good job. So Pete and I have done a very good job of always putting the company first and always making sure that everyone understands what the vision of the company is and where the destination is that we're going. Hey, Daniel Craig here with Profit Coach. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two full years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details. And be sure to mention this.
Yeah, I love that. So revenue optimization, aka fee maxing, would be a great example of this. A lot of folks, they get the vision, they realize the model's broken, I need to extract more revenue per unit, and then they go to their staff and they say, hey, I came up with this program, I want to implement it, and the frontline staff says, we ain't doing that. They're not sold on it. Yeah, it's like, what's in, what's in it for me? And there is literally nothing in, in it for them right. other than complaints, other complaints and yeah. hassle. Right. So how do you get over that? You can obviously incentivize it. For every PMA that gets re-signed, you're gonna get X number of shekels or whatever. Or it can be global. Like we know as a company, what is the company mission and vision? Where is the company right. headed? Right. That's a much harder uh, it's hard to challenge for two reasons. Number one, there's infrastructure and intention, but it also means the company has to actually be growing. Yeah. If the company's not growing, you got a short ladder. Like, I can climb it, but I'm going to get and, to And that. at some point, they're not going to believe you anymore. Right. They're going to say, you've been saying that for three years, and we're still where we are. So I don't, I don't believe what you're saying. And, and I'm not buying what you're selling. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, I mean, I've, I've heard the number 68% that, you know, they're not money is not the reason why they do stuff. Right. That's not what that, right. they leave right. you not because of, you know, in the property management business, people don't leave because of a rate hike. They leave because they feel you don't care about them. Mm -hmm. And I think the same could be said for employees. They don't do things for money. I mean, I get you need your basic needs and you need all that. But at the end of the day, people do it because they want to feel they belong. They want to feel they're making a difference. And they, they want to be appreciated. They want to feel part of a higher purpose. They want to feel like they're a part of something. And, if, and as leaders, just because I am an owner of the company doesn't mean that I have the right to say I'm the owner and I say because. That doesn't get you anywhere. That, that maybe could be, yeah, I could fire you because of it, but at the end of the day, they're gonna go, you know what, that's not enough for me, I need more. And, and they'll leave. And the, I think the biggest challenge is, people quit probably three months before they actually walk out the door. Mm -hmm. So you get those people walking, walking dead. Walking dead. And you get, all, you get all the trials and the problems and iterations that go on with that. And, and I think that that goes back to being a bad leader. And I think it goes back to the leadership and the communication between the team. You know, he's an operations guy, I'm a sales guy. There's always that, that polarity between each other and the opposite. And recently, probably within the last year or two, he and I have been able to see the vision together where it's not, I'm not protecting my territory, he's not protecting his territory. We're understanding and respecting each other's territories, but we're also looking at the vision of where we're going with it, which I think is very hard to do. Yeah, no doubt. So let's talk about that in the context of EOS. Mm -hmm. EOS is something you guys have adopted for how long now? About a year and a half? Yeah. Yeah, about a year and a half. So you're in it. And in the EOS, we talked before the show, there's this very clear distinction. You got the visionary, you got the implementer. In the book Traction, it talks about the visionary being free and yep. the, in, the integrator being stressed because they're working about all the details. You mentioned that you have this distinction between the two of you. Let's talk a little bit about what it looks like nuts and bolts wise to actually, within the context of that management structure, just because it's what you guys have chosen. What does that look like infrastructure wise in terms of how you run the company off US? So right now, as the I'm the integrator, Steve's the uh, visionary, and uh, I'm the CEO of the business. Steve is the CVO, as they talk about in the book. So it's interesting because Steve's also the vice president of sales and marketing. So in one role, with one hat, he reports to me. In the other role, the CVO, I report to him. Mm -hmm. So it makes for interesting uh, conversation sometimes. This is a more recent change, correct? More recent, yes. So what's yes. the backstory there? So the backstory is, we, we, you know, and this is, I think this is a very good lesson for people, I think, when they read a book and they, they try to live by the book. Because, <laughs> you know, everybody has different 
strengths and weaknesses. And when we went by the book, the book said that basically the integrator was basically running everything. Everything reports to the CEO Mm -hmm. and everybody reports to the integrator. And to Pete's defense, we wanted to run it like the book because we're thinking, okay, well, let's do it the way the book says. And one of the challenges with that is Pete as the integrator is all numbers and data and everything should equal everything else. And it's KPIs and it's metrics. And the challenge though with that is with sales and marketing, that's not really a metric, marketing is. Sales, not so much of a metric type operation. There's gotta be that imagination. And so when I removed myself from the company in the sense that I was going out being free, as you'd say, and I'm out speaking and I'm radio shows and I'm doing everything else, the, the, the company was set up very structured and the sales and marketing side, everything was so KPI. The only way I could describe it is, it was almost like everybody had their little fiefdom and they were protecting their KPIs and their metrics and they really didn't care about what was going on next door to them as long as their numbers were green. And so everybody, without everybody looking at the overall picture of going, hey guys, maybe the ship is sinking and they're going, yeah, but my module's good. I'm protected because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It's like, sure. yeah, but the ship is sinking. Like an example would be our marketing team. They would see that they got X amount of leads and their KPI was green. It didn't matter that those leads weren't translating into closed doors. Mm-hmm. That's sales problem. Mm-hmm. And so until they realize that it's a company problem, and that they need to work together to solve it, then we realize that, okay, well maybe there's certain dollars that we're spending on lead sources that are not converting because they're just not really good lead sources. And once we once Steve got back in, we looked at that and we were able to get more cohesiveness in the, in the company. Yeah, so what is the lesson that I'm picking up here? Was the lesson that this was just <laughs> structurally something that needed to happen or was the lesson that Pete as the integrator needed to have somebody sitting at a higher managerial level. Yeah, so, and and that's why I still report to Pete as the VP of sales and marketing. So there was nobody reporting. So I basically, let's say I'm the one who shepherds and herds the sales and marketing team with my imagination and my creativeness. And I'm kind of the one, because if if it was just operations, they would say, if it doesn't fit in this box, if if this client or whatever does not fit in this perfect box, we're not taking them. Well, all of a sudden, all of a, a lot of these properties that are coming through, I mean, yeah, I may go a little off scale a little further, be like, well, it's not that bad, we can take it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pete has to reel me in on that, but at least there's that imagination thing where when you just have someone that's going, no, it's black and white, there is no gray. But this industry is all gray. I mean, let's face it, there's always people with other problems or challenges that are, it's not this, it's not that, it's somewhere in between, but they were basically taught, it's either black or white or we don't take it, mm-hmm. which that, that hurts the numbers of the company overall. Sure. I think part of the challenge is you ask any operator, you know, is your company running efficiently, they're gonna probably tell you no. Right, there's not too many companies, especially in the property management industry that we feel running efficiently. And so you're always tweaking, you're always trying to run more, you know, more efficiently, right? The operator, the integrator, stressed out, right? It's like you get so many, I mean, no matter what, you're always going to get negative feedback. You're always going to get people who are unhappy, right? Because you're doing your job and then all of a sudden the, the resident is unhappy or the owner forgot what they signed and you, you, you employ something and it's like, wait a second, I, I didn't realize I signed that, right? I didn't want that charge. So there's always, there's always a negative feedback coming into the property manager. No one calls you to say, hey, I'm doing a, you guys are just doing an awesome job. Mm-hmm. They call you to complain. And so what I took my eye off the ball was that I kept trying to figure out and how to systemize and how to automate and how to make our deliverable better. But by doing that, I really didn't, I kind of took my eye off the ball on the sales and marketing. And because there was no authority figure that was looking at sales and marketing, all of a sudden the numbers were shrinking. 
And then Steve comes back and he goes, wait a second, our numbers are shrinking. I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. I, where, I've got my own problems over here. and I'm trying to make a perfect pie. That's not my problem right we're now. We're with our own mm. stuff, right? Mm. So the lesson that I, I would say, to go back to your question, I would say the lesson in that would be that you know, if, if, the, if the integrator is a true integrator, which is what Pete is, he has to have somebody that has that imagination. Normally it's the visionary, and in a company that's, that's our size, you may have to wear double hats, which is what I'm doing. I'm wearing double hats. I'm the VP of sales and marketing. Now, I have a sales manager and I have a marketing manager. They report to me. So if there's, right. so I'm the buffer between Pete and them. <laughs> so they say, hey, there may be, you may need to talk to Pete about that. And I say, okay, well, let me, let me I'll handle that. So that, you know, as Pete, the owner of the company, can tell them no, they're not gonna go against him and say no. But if they say, hey Steve, can you see, is this workable or not? I say, well, let me talk to Pete. And then we're equals having that conversation. So th the lesson was, you can't have a pure integrator. It's not a perfect world, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And you have to have that imagination side on a role that is imagination. And the best way I could explain it when we talked to our other business partner, he said, Having Pete run sales and marketing is like having a fish climb a tree. It's just not gonna happen. As much as you yell at that fish, it is not gonna climb that tree. He's like, he, Pete just doesn't think that way. So having, putting Pete in that role, expecting him to get that result, it, it's kind of my fault for just letting it happen and walk away and go, okay, good luck. So it's kind of on me as well to say, hey, you know, I have, I have to have ownership in that as well to say that was not the best move for you as part owner to walk away like that and say, okay, Pete, it's yours. And I, out of respect for Pete, I didn't want to step on his toes, right? I didn't want to, you know, I kind of saw it happening and I would ask him questions and he wouldn't have the answer, but out of respect for Pete and his role and his position and what he was right. doing, I didn't want to come back in and save the day. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll just watch and wait and watch and wait. So, so in retrospect, let's say going forward, can you see a scenario where you hire a VP of sales and marketing that re replaces you in that function? Yes, yeah, definitely. There, this is a, I don't wanna say a fix. We may be able to systemize a lot of things where we don't need a VP of sales and marketing, where we can use automation to handle a lot of things. Um, we're trying to take as much, I don't wanna say as much human oh, interaction let me, let me out. Let me say this on a higher level. The ultimate goal is to take all the hats off and just be owners. Sure. Right. So there will be a CEO of Empire Industries one day. If we have, there'll be a vice president, there'll be a CEO, and that CEO will be the guy that needs to grow the business. And Steve and I will be the owners of the business. Right. So look, I used to be the property manager. I used to be the maintenance tech. I used mm -hmm. to be the field tech. I used to be the accounting. I used on your way up. Man. It all evolves, right? Yeah. And so over time, I had twenty hats, and over time, right. we take the hats off. So now it's just that I, I wear the one hat right now. And Steve is wearing the, the two hats right now. And he had the one hat, it wasn't working with, the, with either with the team or with the structure that we had in place. So now he's got to figure it out. So we're, we're solving the sales and marketing challenges. So that's the first thing you have to do is when you come back in, you got to roll up your sleeves, you got to solve it. You got to get it back to a baseline of where it's supposed to be. Then you have to elevate your people so that they can take care of it. So eventually one of those, one of those people that we have right now that's a marketing manager or sales manager if they're not the right guy, then we have to hire somebody or we can elevate one of those guys up. And eventually Steve can get back out. Now I'm a big believer in if you have the KPIs and you, and you have the baseline and you know what the numbers should be, it becomes very easy, mm -hmm. to, it becomes easier sure. to manage it, right? Yeah. Oh, Mr. Sales Manager, you know, you're supposed to hit 35 properties at $150 a door, you know, average dollar sale, and it's been two, three months, you haven't done it, bye-bye. Accountability, metrics. Accountability. That's right. got to exist for sure. So when we talk about this transition that you guys are making and how 
the company as run, there's a lot of shifts. You guys are always future oriented. Known yeah. you guys for a minute. You're thinking about what's what's coming next. Talk to me about what you believe to be the biggest threats to your bigger future. To to ours at Empire or the industry? No, you guys. This is a, I love this question. This is a question I got from Steve Wealthy. What are the biggest threats to your bigger future currently? To Empire currently, um, him not accepting the doors I bring in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Well, I think um, that's, that really is a good question. Yeah. Um, I would say the biggest threat that we have is the, is the there's some kind of software that comes out, and I know it's an industry threat, but some kind of software and people self-manage. We actually had our first owner leave us. He lives in California, not to go to another product manager company, but to use some kind of online system. Cozy or something like that. Something like that, yeah. I, I would say, if you ask me, I would say the bigger threat is the speed of growth and our whether it's us, whether it's the systems not keeping up with the speed of growth that we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, Pete and I have had these conversations that he and I have to mentally keep elevating our game to become better, to keep up with the company. Because let's say a $1 million company, the CEO of a $1 million company is different than a $5 million, than a right. $20 million company. Right. So if he wants to keep being CEO, he has to keep elevating his game. Keep growing. <clears throat> yes, keep growing. So if all of a sudden we say, hey, next year, we're going to be in five new cities. We're going to be in Austin. We're going to be in Colleen. We're going to be in San Antonio and Corpus, right? He has to start thinking differently. And he has to start thinking as a owner that has property managers in multiple cities. Right. So I think to me, the biggest challenge is the speed of growth that we can accomplish because we're building such infrastructure and Pete's so good at building systems that once everything is humming along, now it's just a matter of copy, paste, repeat, copy, paste, repeat. And I think the challenge that we're going to run into is we actually may become the hindering people in the company if we don't keep elevating at the speed. We could be the ones that's holding it back. Well, we, we are always the ones sabotaging the future. Yeah. Right? We are always the constraint and the bottleneck. Absolutely. It's, it's America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. Yeah. You can do as you please when you want. Yeah. The reason I am not more successful is that the quality of my thought, the quality of my actions absolutely isn't there. So I want to I wanna hear more. You guys, you're doing a lot. I know you're doing speaking. You guys were talking to me before the show about some biz dev stuff, yep. etc. I assume focus is another issue. Like, keep feeding me more right. on, on this, this, this biggest threat so, thing. Well, I'm a short-term thinker. I see the problems that are happening over the next few months, and I am solving those, those challenges right now. And I focus mainly on the business and empire. So, like, for example, the challenge that we have today is that our online checklist system cannot keep up with the demand that we have. For example, we have maybe 60, 70, 80 checklists open. And the checklists are great, but they're too manual and I still need people to do certain things. So that's the problem, that, that's a challenge that I'm focusing on in solving. Steve, on the other hand, he's looking at so many other things like, okay, how can we utilize our influence inside the property manager business to help other property managers? And so he starts going off and, and looking at, at, at those things and he's creating joint ventures and certain things. And I'll let him talk about that. But I'm, my, my position is basically focusing on what are the challenges that we have as a business right now and how do I get through it? How do I, how do I keep my clients happy? Um, that's the question I ask myself every day. How do I make sure my clients are happy? Retention. Yeah. And what's interesting in your question <clears throat> is, uh, I'll back up a second. So Pete and I got some coaching and training by a gentleman named Marshall Silver. About four years ago, okay? And we, we, we got trained by him and, and part of the training was three days at his house, basically, okay? Guy, 
fantastic guy. He's a business hypnotist, which you wouldn't know what that means, right? I wouldn't. Right. Still don't. Still don't. <laughs> super, super sharp guy, right? And one of the questions he asked, he says, Steve, let me ask you a question. He said, could your, and now we're, we're maybe two years old, right? We spend a lot of money to go spend some time with him to unlock why we can't grow. What is the, what is the problem why we can't accept that growth? What's, what's blocking us? Um, and other things. So one of the questions he says, let me ask a question. Could your business do $5 million this year? Or two, two million? And I said, oh, maybe, you know, we're pushing hard, but we may be able to do that. And he goes, okay, how about five? Could it do five? I'm like, I don't think we could do five. He says, how about 10? And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I just said, I don't think I could do five, I'm pretty sure I can't do it. He goes, how about a hundred? He goes, could you do a hundred million this year? And I'm thinking to myself, what is he, where is he getting at? He says, the challenge is, is somewhere between one and five, you were unsure. From five and 10, you said no and blocked out anything past 10. He goes, you weren't even listening to me anymore. Mm -hmm. He goes, but what you didn't notice is maybe Richard Branson was standing behind me with a hundred million dollar check ready to invest in your company. He wasn't, by the way. He wasn't, but if he was, but he says, but he says <laughs> if, if your mind shuts that down, you will never see those opportunities. He goes, Google did it. Yahoo's done it. He goes, there are companies that have done that. He goes, but because you mentally have blocked it out, you will never see that opportunity and you will never grow your business to that level because you blocked out. And, and so that was pretty powerful to me to realize that. He says, that is why you cannot limit your thinking to that. And that's why I am the visionary and I'm always pushing Pete like, I see this opportunity. I see this opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because I, I'm always going, I sure. don't want to be sure. that one that says, I don't see it because he's looking at the checklist and I'm going, hey Pete, look at this opportunity. And he's saying, I'm too busy as a mad scientist right. in the checklist. Right. But it's necessary and it's needed, but that's why both of us work real well together. Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there. So let's translate that for folks that are watching. Some people that are watching that, they're bullshit meters kind of going off the charts yeah. right now. So the way, what I hear, what's useful to me is to think about the difference between reasoning by analogy, meaning this is the way we've been doing it. I want a 10% bump, 20% bump, 30% bump. That's reasoning by analogy though. It fundamentally assumes that the way you've been doing it is the, the paradigm in which you need to sure. operate as opposed to reasoning by first principles. This is something Elon Musk talks about, but first principle says, the principles are, are the mechanics of how the world is created, things like gravity, and there are similar business principles. Those principles would yield us to say, if we write out the, the equation or the math per se on a business idea, we could be way broader in thinking about what's possible as opposed to just relating to it based on what I've done up to this point. It's a really hard context switch to get out of, mm -hmm. but what I've noticed personally is that when I answer that question of the biggest threats to my own future, it always comes back to ambition. How much optimism and belief do I have in what is possible in myself? Because if I believe that the bigger things are possible, I'm at least gonna try and experiment and push the bounds. 
How do you internalize the, the wisdom of, of what Steve, this aha moment that Steve had in that same setting? So for me, it's like, <clears throat> hey man, we gotta fix what's, what's broken right now. <laughs> Let, you know, to me, Empire is the, the hub. Everything else comes off of Empire. So if Empire is not providing for our families and, or producing for our, our, you know, our clients, and Empire is not making us any money, it doesn't matter about anything else. And, and I know that is a shortcoming of mine and that's why you know Steve is kind of pulling me along sometimes, and it's a it's this push pull that we have to deal with, mm -hmm. right? Because he thinks he has 15 great ideas a day. <laughs> Just ask I me. Mean, in actuality, <laughs> it's probably one a week. <laughs> yeah, right. And and he says yes all the time. And so all of a sudden, what happens with with Steve is he says yes, he has all these great ideas, and he's doing like 10 percent here, 20 percent here, and there's nothing that ever gets all the way done. He gets 80% done, and it's done, but, it, but that 10% or that 20% is where you actually make the money. It's the last mile. It's the last mile. And he literally runs a marathon, he goes 25.2 miles. I'm like, dude, you know it's 26.2, right? <laughs> and that's when I handed him and go, hey man, can you finish this up? I've got this project. And he's like, you've been doing what? Like, what have you been doing? I'm like, hey, don't ask, just finish it and get it done. And can you get it done tomorrow? Because so, we have a deadline. So for your <laughs> listeners out there, the best thing to do is if you have this kind of dynamic is you write it all down, you prioritize it, and you get on the same page. Yeah. And what I found is when I utilize Steve in the projects that I'm working on, even if it's just 10 or 15% of his time, mm. he's more engaged yeah. and the project actually gets done and he brings me less projects. Yeah. Right? And it's like he keeps me busy. <laughs> it's like, here's a crayon, go out on a wall. You mean Steve? Basically. Yeah. I'm okay but with he that. does the same thing to me, right? So now I'm involved in some of the things that he's been working on. Yeah. And so I can tell him, don't do those. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. and, and, then, and then I tell him that. That's a great idea. I love we, it. We need to move forward on on that. I love and so it. I do. I'm, I'm doing a very. I'm doing a better job now of kind of taking him and saying, "Look, dude, the, these are these are things don't do. These are the ones to focus on." Yeah. And he's doing a better job of focusing on on those things. So as a fellow visionary, I'll just tell you that I am pretty open with my staff about communicating that I am the talent. Yeah. I've used like the Britney Spears analogy. Like I'm Britney, right? right. I'm good at singing. I'm not sure that's the. But okay. hey, 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 <laughs> roll with it, brother. Oh, okay, I'm, so, so I'm Britney. Not judging. I have no clue how to put on a concert. I can right. sing, but I don't know what's going on with the lighting, the yeah. stage, the ticket sales, the people, logistics, the zoning. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I want to embrace selective incompetence and be mind-numbingly incompetent at 99% of areas within the business. I used to think that I had to know it all. Right. It would be irresponsible to not know a ton about accounting, finance, legal entity structure, the sorts of things you would just think generally you could ask a business person about. Right. A lot of that stuff I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty decent when it comes to um, areas like marketing, for example, or design. I've got some impulses. But it's not the core area that's going to be my like number one ability. It's going to take the company to the next level. So that's what I'm doing. I'm telling my staff, hey, sure. I'm the talent, and the talent needs to be managed. And just make it happen. The Tell me where to show up. The talent, has has a, the talent needs to be managed. The talent has an agent. Yeah. The talent yeah. gets told where to go and what to do. And when the talent is there, they do their thing, and everybody gets out of the way and off the stage. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because um, so I, I have a, an assistant, personal assistant. And her job is to protect my calendar. Whenever people want to meet with me, I'm like, you, I'll say yes, 
you have to be the one to say yeah. no. Like, so ooh, she's the one who ooh. controls my calendar. When people call <laughs> to meet with me, she'll basically either yeah. see if it fits, and if it doesn't, she'll redirect it to someone else. But people, my calendar will be full all day, and I'll get nothing done, nothing productive. She's blocking it for me now. She's gotta own that, though. She, she does. Be going back to Steve. What's the point of having that person in place if they're constantly gonna go back yeah. and be like, Steve, what about this? What yeah. about this? What am I paying you for? Yeah, exactly. She she takes care of it, and she's like, nope, nope, nope. That that's mm. done. That, and then she'll get mm. stuff done without me even being involved in it. Mm. And she's talking for me. And people will say like, why do I have to talk to her? I'm like, that's the deal. That's the deal. She's in control of my calendar and she controls my yes or no. Because what one thing I read, he made me read it and I made her listen to it, was the one thing to have the yeah, focus. So every time I talk about doing something, she goes, is that part of your one thing? And I'm like, oh no, it's not, but I really want to do it. She's like, no, you can't. That's not part of what you're doing. So she, she's kind of my handler. Yeah. Steve's going to write a book called The Two Things. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe one more. Just to go, so to go off your analogy, if you don't want to use Brittany in the future, you can use Dr. Oz. So somebody as Dr. Oz, you know, he's, you know, he's a world-class surgeon. Right. And of course he has the daytime show. Right. And somebody asked him, how can he do it? He goes, look, when I go to surgery, Everything else is prepped, all the nurses there, the patient is there, I just gotta go in and perform surgery. I go, I go in, I perform surgery, and I'm out of there. Right. When I, with my show, I have the producers, mm. I have mm. the count, mm. every, the, the guests are all booked, everything is you done. You may want to use that in. one, because didn't she have some uh, hair cutting issues? Yeah. I'm just saying, he might be a, he, <laughs> he may be a better analogy. Whatever, Pavarotti, whatever analogy works for, for you guys, the point <laughs> is, I'm the talent. So. I get it, I, I agree with it 100%. We are so blessed to be in, yes. uh, in your presence. <laughs> I did it again. As you guys have taken some good license with that, let's round out the show with talking a little bit about what you guys are doing in the remote labor force. So you guys sure. have how many, what percentage of your staff is remote right now? Over 80%. Yeah, over 80%. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a decent margin there. When, right. it's a, when, it's a, when it's a high staff intensive industry, that's a lot. So you guys have dipped your toe in and now you've kind of gone full hog. Do yeah. you, was there any skepticism or did you always just know that remote was the future? I, it's funny, I was a big believer in leverage, right person, right seat. And I was skeptical, shocker. Yeah, <laughs> and so I started using virtual assistants in the Philippines and India and I was always trying to figure out a way, I'm like, there's gotta be a way to make this work, but there's challenges with, with Asian culture, in my experience uh, of, of them being able to talk on the phone and understand the US culture. And again, it's just my experience, not saying they're all that way, but I had some challenges with that and you know they're, they're, they'd have a landslide they'd be gone for a week and you're like where'd you go and you know well, that kind of stuff yeah, internet would be down. internet would be down so there was, there was third world challenges with them and so I knew there was a way I just didn't know how to make it happen and then we stumbled upon um, using virtual assistants in Mexico and when we started doing that that all of a sudden unlocked a huge key for us and that we kind of took that ball ran with it we're still running with it um, it's been very, very successful for us, and, and we're kind of moving forward. So again, Steve had the, the great idea to use it, but that idea would have gone nowhere if we didn't figure out how to utilize it. Some infrastructure. It. Right. So for us, the, the reason why we can use most of our staff down there is because we have online training, online checklists, and so now everybody knows how to do, because look, 80% look, of the stuff is done the same all the time in our industry. Lease renewals, inspections, you know, move-ins, move-outs, it's, it's, it's basically the same thing. And so if you literally have a checklist, then behind that checklist is videos on how to do something or screenshots or the policy manual, the procedure manual, you literally get anybody, it doesn't have to be in your office to, to go ahead and do the job. And so because of that, we're able to train and get people in Mexico to, to basically do the job. 
And then the escalated stuff, the 20% goes to our team in the US. So you're talking about some glue that exists that a lot of people don't have. They want to throw a body at the problem, just doesn't work out. Doesn't work. But another part of the distinction here is that if it's doing VA and a remote team member, a VA is kind of the person you talk about. It's the cheapest possible labor, doing the most menial of tasks that needs extreme oversight. A remote team member is somebody who just isn't physically located right. in your office. Yeah. Right. Are these people Empire team members? Are they integrated in the company culture? And so, oh, what, so what's the bar for that, guys? So, well, obviously interviewing, making sure right person, right seat, disc profile. We hire on the role, not the person. Um, and, and you said something that's very important is, is they are part of our company. They're on our website. They do Facebook posts. I mean, maintenance tip Monday. I mean, they, 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 one of them just did the whole integration with us in property mill and property wear. He did it down there in Mexico. We weren't even, we weren't even a part of it. So they are a part of our company. So they, they might as well be in Seattle. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And what I tell people is I, I call it tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier one is data entry. Anything that's a keyboard mm -hmm. is tier one. Tier two is data entry and phone. Tier three is in person, mm -hmm. right? So we have tier two people. They can do everything except physically go to a property because they are not here. But I tell people, if this, if, if you had an assistant that was next door and your door was shut and they had to slip something under the door, you'd be okay with that. And they're like, yeah, and I go, but if that person was in the office next door, you'd still be okay. Now just keep moving that office further down and now it just happens to be in Mexico, essentially. But also, you know, we, we, we praise them, um, we, we give them awards, we, they're, they're embedded in the company culture, and we have Google Hangout sessions, so video conferencing with them. Um, so they are- They're integrated they are, in our company. They're treated just like people in Houston or in Dallas. Yeah, they, and, they, and they do a fantastic job. Their work ethic love is it. second to none. I love it, so I think where we get off the rails here is the commodification that people are going after for looking for cheap, cheap labor. Sometimes it can kind of dehumanize the person that you're looking for, what that results in is the non-integration. They're not a member of the team. They're just somebody, they're a whipping boy to, yeah. to, to get a task done, et cetera. Right. That, what you're talking about matters whether or not they're in person or not in person. Right. You're just talking about culture. Right. And, and I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we've seen when people try to get a virtual assistant, we'll say, or, or even you know a, a key member, is they have no systems in place themselves. So they have a problem, they want to hand it to them you're giving you have to right. give that team member a way to be successful and if you don't have a system what happens is it puts a spotlight on your own company's weakness totally. so what do you do you go you know what forget it i'll do it, it myself yeah. i'll take it back yeah. it doesn't work globally yeah exactly yeah. it works you're you have a bad business model which means you're a bad leader bad you know it goes on with that you know our team members down there they have kpis they have to hit as well yep. they i mean everything is yeah they are they are accountable for everything i love it so that metaphor you brought up is applicable in so many areas of the businesses I tried such and such a lead source. The leads are no good. They yeah. just done online marketing, Steve. Yeah. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, no, I tried it. This internet thing's a fad. It's a, it's a passing phase. Employees. <laughs> I tried yeah. hiring people. It didn't work. They don't do it as good as me. They don't do it. It's like, well, where's your systems manual? Where's your procedures? I don't have them. They're you up here. You take that to your clients. Well, I bought this property. It didn't cash flow this month. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Real yeah. estate doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you hear it all the time. It's, it's, it's the fact that they don't have the proper business model sure. is why. And that's what I tell people. Before you hire anyone, remote or virtual assistant, you need to make sure that you have the keys for them to win. You, have, you need to have the systems in place, yeah. the manual, yeah. videos. You so they know what the deliverable is. What so is the deliverable? Yeah. Well, we know that we can hire someone, and what is the time frame to get them up and running? Depends, but mostly about two to four weeks in, in each department. That's pretty quick. So you guys are helping folks actually do this now. Is that my we are. We are. We we've uh, we've we've had so much success, and we've had so much 
good employees that those that hang around with other good employees, right? And we've had so many property management companies come to us and say, hey, could I get one of those? How? So we've started placing them for other companies because look, these are great workers. They do have an amazing work ethic. We have never had one problem since we've been helping other companies place them. It's been that good. We had one guy, um, he wasn't even sure if he wanted one. He has eight of them now. And he's like, I cannot believe I ran my company without these people. He goes, he actually went down there and bought a house in Mexico so that they could work out of that house, which you don't need to, but that's how, that's how ingrained he is and how much he believes in it now. You, if you call our phones, it's getting answered in Mexico. You could not tell if they're in Houston or in Mexico. No, wow. absolutely. Yeah, it, it's been it's been revolutionary. And again, the the biggest thing that we've learned is it allows scalability for growth, and we can give a clear deliverable to our clients consistently. So we don't have to worry about a property manager being walking a property and they're having a bad day. These people, this is their job, that's their role, and that's what they do every single day, all day, and they're so good at it because they're doing that one thing. They're focusing on one role, and that's what we've learned. Is you know, I think they. I think the challenge in property management world is it's inversely related, meaning you need a property manager that you say, okay, Jordan, we're gonna hire you to manage our property. Now you're gonna become an expert in leasing, accounting, maintenance, vendor relations, owner relations, you're gonna start walking properties, and not only- property code. Property code, and not only that, but you're gonna do that on 200 properties, because that's what I need to make money, so good luck. And all of a sudden, you get to a point of maximum stress at about 140 to 170 is where most property managers turn a profit. Well, that is also their maximum stress point. So the point that you're making money as an owner is the point that you're maxing out your number one employee. Mm -hmm. It's inverse, it makes no sense, it's, it's illogical. The, the reason property managers burn out and get fired or quit is because they go, I can't deal with this anymore. Everyone's yelling at me because I'm too busy. I'm walking properties, I can't answer the phone. If I'm an owner, I'm saying, I don't care that you're walking ABC property. You told me that you would make me a priority and you're not answering your phone. Right. So it's, it, again, you're not using your team members in the right places and for the right tools. I Like Pete said earlier, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of all the problems can be answered in Mexico. They can be dealt with. I don't know how to log into my portal. I don't know, why do I have to pay my rent this month? I got an HOA violation. While all those things are important, I don't think that's the best use of your property manager's skill. Mm -hmm. They need to answer the 20% when they, they say, you know what, we may get a lawsuit if we don't answer this issue. But they have 100 emails when they get up in the morning just with stupid questions. I think they're important and they need to be answered, but not by them. So the, the concept that we were talking about is breaking out the value chain. Absolutely. At the end, we get a car, but along the way, there were 20 different functions that were required. And, and manufacturing is a great example because that's exactly what they yeah. do. They break out the, the specific pieces. Painting happens here. Wheel assembly happens over here. With any service-based outcome, there's no reason you can't do the same thing and say, is this a situation where I need tier one, tier two, or tier three labor? Yeah. That kind of efficiency, a lot of folks feel like is gonna happen at some point when there's more scale. Is this something that somebody that's managing 150 doors can employ? Absolutely. I believe so. I think, I think most companies, most managers, property management companies, especially smaller ones, would like to run a departmental style versus a portfolio style because of all the things that Steve said. But financially, you can't afford it. Well, if you started stripping stuff out and giving it to an assistant, you can, in, in Mexico or you know, in the Philippines or something, all of a sudden you can afford it. Because that person is literally one third the cost of somebody in the US. And then all of a sudden you can focus on you know, things that are gonna make you money like retention and growth. Giving better service to yeah. the owners and being, see, and, and sure. Pete, Pete always has a, has a good point. He says, 
our industry is reactive, meaning we only do something when somebody calls and complains. Right. We are not a proactive industry. So Pete was, for example, one day Pete was like, why is the phone ringing? We need to go and figure out why is the phone ringing and get it upstream and stop them from even needing to call. The biggest challenge a lot of property management company owners think is they go, well, I have the relationship or my property manager. Right. The reality is, is you just want your problem solved. We don't want to go and have lunch and talk all day. I'm just saying, I just want my problem solved. That's all I care about. Right. Solve it. I actually don't even want to call you. Right. Text me and get it done, right? That's all we really want. We think, oh, we're too important. We want to have the relationship. That's not how society works nowadays. So if I can speak my piece on this, I don't really have a preference between departmental and portfolio. I don't run a property management company. What I do care about is finance. I care about financial outcomes for my clients. That's why I really dig looking at things like labor efficiency. You run it however you want. If you're blowing it out, you got a 30% profit margin, God bless, whatever that structure looks like. But what I have found is that universally, most companies need to improve their revenue optimization in order to hit their profit targets. And companies that have a departmental structure are typically easier to make the changes that need to happen policy process-wise, owner-facing fees, et cetera. Whereas in portfolio-based companies, a lot of times it comes down to, we modified the agreement, I, uh, I got the paperwork, I got the letter, but now my frontline staff, they don't wanna do it because they say, we're gonna get this blowback and, and and what's the upside for them, right? They're gonna roll out this fee increase letter, get angry people on the phone, they don't participate in any of the upside. Have you guys, were you, is the structure that you had in regards to departmental versus portfolio, has it always been that way or have you guys been on both sides of that equation? We, we, we've been on both sides. We've and, done everything. And one of the, I'll tell you, one of the reasons why, you know, one of the, 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 the pushing points, if you will, to go to this is, we were tired of being held hostage by the by, property managers. By because if they get pissed and they're managing 180 doors, when they leave, they have all the secrets to that 180 doors. We have no idea what's going on. Now it's spread out and we're not held hostage. So people's like, I'm sick and tired of doing, not wanting to piss them off so that I can make some money. Mm -hmm. Now it, Pete goes, your department, you're implementing this. You don't like it? There's five of you in this department. You don't have all the keys to the castle. Mm. So it's a way to actually spread out the leverage of the team. And because just like you said, they don't do it out of fear. They, that's the only reason they don't do it. They're doing it because they go, I don't really want to piss off my property manager because she may not do it. And then if I push her harder, then she may quit. And then I got big I'm other problems. It's fear, right? And that's where we were operating for a long time in fear. Like, don't want to piss them off. Don't want, and finally Pete's like, I'm done. I'm done with that. We're, it's our company. We're going to control it. And the only way we can do that is not have them have all the keys to the castle. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. <clears throat> but on the way there, we, we tried everything. We did portfolio. Then we did you know, a hybrid. Then we did, okay, each manager is going to have an assistant right. or each manager is going to have two assistants. Then we, then, we then we did call centers. Right. That was disastrous, by the way. And now, <laughs> and now we finally went to this, this departmental so the pushback is, well, hey, communication, people want one throat to choke, people want a consistent relationship, that's what the PM represents. But the truth is that the departmental structure provides the potential or the possibility for even more unity by knowing that because three people touched it, clearly we have to have unified communication. Yes. Those three people can't just talk amongst themselves. I'll yeah. take it one step further. Like Steve said, the, the client just wants their, they just want their, they just want the outcome answered, right? So what we found is with the departmental structure with the folks down in Mexico, we're able to hire multiple people. So I can hire two people to do lease renewals. So yeah. if that one person yeah. leaves, I'm not stuck like Chuck, right? So I have two people doing it. But at the end of the day, if, if, if all of that stuff is being handled, right, you, you, the day-to-day the, the -day stuff, 
the we we changed our property managers to client relations specialists. Mm -hmm. And we did that on purpose. And Steve came up with the idea, but we did that on purpose because we don't want them to identify themselves as property managers. We want them to identify themselves as client relations Service. specialists. Bingo. And so our people in Houston, they're the 20% escalation, right? So 20% of their day should be escalations. The 80% of their day is gonna be what? Client relations. So that owner is getting a better relationship now than they ever have in our company when we were portfolio-based. Because mm. they actually have the time mm. to call those folks. And so, they have time to be more proactive. I don't know about you guys, but what I've noticed is that for so many companies, firings are a blessing in disguise. Because there's the change that you sense and you need the notice. Yeah. No, need, no needs to happen. Portfolio is a great example. Talking, I, mean, I, I talked to a client um, recently that manages over 2,000 units. And the company is, it's doing okay, but there's a lot of room for improvement, but the guy is held hostage by virtue of these PMs, can't make the changes. When that key person does quit that you thought was indispensable, that's so often when the that's necessary the changes needed to happen. Now we got the space, yeah. now we can reset. And, and the problem is, is most of the time as owners, we don't make that decision. We wait for the person quits. Exactly. And it's like, exactly. I, I could have done this because the, like I said, the reality is, is they quit three months ago. Yeah, exactly. And I remember when Pete and I, I'll never forget, when we went and spoke to, to a, a large property management company, the guy said, every time an employee quits, I take out my checkbook and I write a check for $3,000. And he goes, because I know that's how much of mistakes we're gonna find. And he said, the longer I wait, the bigger the check. Mm. And we, we've experienced that like everyone has. And, it, and it's so true. It's like we're actually not being good owners by letting a bad employee stick around. because Tolerating. Tolerating. Because number one, the other team, it's toxic. It's cancerous to the mm. rest of the team. Mm. It's it's mm. cancerous. It's toxic to the to the customers. Mm. It's it's Our fear is basically imploding our company because we're running it on emotions and not fact-based. Absolutely. And I'll tell you this. February 1. That was the day we walked six property managers out of our office. Basically six out of seven. And two weeks before that, we walked two of them out. No, right? we walked, we walked uh, four of them out on February 1, two weeks before we walked to two before that. So within a two week time frame, we went from six property, seven property managers to one property manager. And the rest of that is just backfilled with this labor that you've, these, these remote team members that you have in Mexico. We, we transferred two other guys to be the CRSs, the client relations specialists, but yeah, yeah. we've taken six. So was your hand forced or was this really a... a it, it was something that was forced a year ago and I didn't... You got fed action. up with it to take enough action. He didn't right. take enough action quick enough. Yeah, but I didn't take action quick enough, but I still took some action. Meaning, right. like I, I, I hired the people in Mexico. He was setting up the back end ready for this to happen. So he had been setting up the, like, if he did that and we didn't have the Mexico operation, it would have been disastrous. He already had the back end. So it actually was, I don't want to say seamless, but it actually was a. It, it was not seamless. It was not it was seamless, but it was not disastrous. It's, it's yeah. never seamless. We're still dealing with it. But I will tell you that those six managers, they quit almost a year ago. Yep. We just didn't see it. Steve talked about like two months. It was, I think they were working about one and a half days a week instead of five days a week. I mean, that's another thing that comes up with the need to break things is compensation. Yep. You come up with this comp structure and you think it's, it's perfect and you work so hard because you don't want to have to change it, yep. but then guess what? If you have any sense of modicum of ambition, you break your own business repeatedly. The yep. comp doesn't work, and so what do you do? Do you tolerate knowing that, knowing that you didn't quite calibrate it right, and now you've got somebody earning 140 that should be at 80. Yeah. Do I go through and now do I deal with this or I just do? Yeah, exactly. That's and then how do I hire the new one? And they're going to say, wait a second, you've created your own 
chaos, basically, is what you've done. And so, yeah, that's a whole other issue. Change management. Hey, that podcast uh, that you recommended online, I went back and listened to, Ed Milet, Jesse Itzler. Yep. For you listening at home, guys, check that episode. Good one, huh? That really, I, I, I got on a kick. I've listened to a couple of that guy's episodes, but there was a quote from him where he said something along the lines of that your desire to please other people is sabotaging your success. Absolutely. Those other people it can be your team members, could be your wife. I've got a good friend. You know, we, we keep talking through what needs to happen and it keeps coming back to wanting to be right about the about starting and running this business. Your will unwillingness to, to just put down, to two, yeah. put two bullets in the head yeah. of the thing that you created of your own baby. It's the concept of... Uh, rebirth requiring death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. So true. Yeah. I mean, and you talk to anyone that's successful and they've gone through many iterations of that type of philosophy and they'll all tell you that is the best thing you could do for yourself and for your company and for your family and for your own sanity is by <clears throat> making that decision and saying, all right, I'm doing it. And after you do it, you go, man, why didn't I do that? I literally me? said the words, I am not going to be nice anymore in January. I literally said those words, yeah. right? And our profit margin shot up since, yeah. since then. Yeah. Just by just by changing, we didn't change anything else. Like it, like we no, we, we didn't buy a big company. We didn't do anything else. Like financially, we just changed how we thought. Yeah. <laughs> and that that change of thinking was a huge shift, reverberating out. What you focus on shows up. This is the question about profit. How do I get yeah. more profitable? Here's how you get more profitable. Start thinking about it. You, you start, start focusing on it. You start requiring it. Yeah. You start saying, it will happen. It is my focus. Yeah. You, you want to lose weight, you, you count your calories. Yeah, this is a great thing. one. You know? How, how do I lose weight? Yeah, it's like, stop putting it? food in your mouth. You know, don't put too much food. How much food? Measure it. The how and the what is a distraction yeah. in so many cases. Yeah. It's like this porn of like, oh, it's just one more checklist. There's this procedure. It's just this document, this thing I got to download. It's, yeah. like, no, it's about intention Absolutely. and commitment and focus and belief and the willingness to face your demons. Guys, I love the courage that you exhibit in this industry. I love what it calls forth out of other people. I want to close with this. I want to hear from both of you individually. What do you believe on the question of entrepreneurship and where it comes from? Do you believe that it is fundamentally born or bred? Steve, let's start with you. I would have to say, I think it's bred. And the reason I say that is my own personal journey and my story is that when I was a young kid, all I ever wanted to do was be an airline pilot. That's all I ever wanted to do was fly airplanes. And I got a job at 25 years old, second youngest person hired at, at Continental Airlines as a pilot. And I was loving life. And I remember telling my wife, I never want to do anything else. I could fly planes and that's all I ever want to do. We'll travel the world and I will love it. Then 9-11 hit. And all of a sudden I had to change my shift. My paradigm shift had to change. And I was thrust into a whole new reality that this safe, secure job was not as safe and secure. And all of a sudden, whatever it was, it sparked something in me that all of a sudden I realized I have to be in charge of my own destiny. That sparked to me being an entrepreneur. That sparked to me doing what I'm doing. And maybe because I'm, I touched the hot stove and almost lost my career that I realized I'd never want to go back. And that just ignited what it is today. But I don't think I, if I was an airline pilot and 9-11 never happened, I don't think I would ever be an entrepreneur. So I think it's bread. All right, bread side on this side. Pete, what about you? I believe it's bread as well. <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was the whole like Kiyosaki, you know, the, he has the, the, the rich dad, poor dad. Yeah. I was the poor dad guy, right? Go to school, get good grades, go get a career. Yeah. And I had a nice career and over six figure salary. But there was always something to me said, man, I really want to do something. I really want to, you know, own something. 
And when we started Oni Empire, I will tell you this, I was a terrible entrepreneur, entrepreneur and I'm still not very good. And the business coaching and going to, you know, listening to podcasts and reading all these books has increased my level of, of ability as an entrepreneur. So I will say this, even though my, my you know, it's funny is my dad was a, was a blue collar worker, but my uncles were all entrepreneurs, but I never, I was never. You didn't privy. identify that way. I did not identify that way. And, and they did not, they did not give me any knowledge on entrepreneurship either. It wasn't, it wasn't available to me, even though they were my uncles. Uh, and so I would say over the last seven years, I've become an adequate entrepreneur, but I'm still not a, I'm still not a great one. So I think I'm being bred as an entrepreneur. Fair enough. You know, my position is that entrepreneurial thinking can be bred, but it's that desire for suffering in many ways, that kind of irrational, sadistic desire. There's something in that, that born aspect that I think people just lean into that, that the vast majority of the world rightly says, that doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Right. Not for the weak of heart. Well, yeah. going to the moon didn't make sense, but they did it, right? They said, we're going to the moon. Logically, you'd go, you can't go there. They said, we're going in 10 years, this, and they did it. This is a great example, though. I mean, generally speaking, going to the moon is a bad idea. Yeah, that makes no sense. There's no air up there. I mean, we gotta, we got to have a lot of engines. It's, there, there's no logical reason. It's not going to mathematically, it doesn't make sense. But they said, you know what? Some entrepreneurs said, we're going. Yeah. Yeah, and they did. Absolutely. So there, there's no doubt that there's a lot of self-actualization caught up in this journey as an entrepreneur. If you don't get that, like if you don't feed off of being on this journey, why yeah. do it? But beyond the self-actualization, the people that enjoy it too much, got to remember that there's also got to be some profits. That's really the reward. Sure. If you just have a great income running this business, there's just too much risk, too much pain, too much suffering. Profit is the reward of being the owner, not your salary. Yeah. It's your scorecard. Yeah. Absolutely. So guys, thanks for uh, coming out. And we're going to be seeing both you guys in Austin at the PM Grow Summit. We're going to see both of you guys there. I'll be there. I'm speaking. I'll be uh, I'll be back in Houston. Be back in Houston, yeah. my man. He, I'm the visionary, man. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the speaker. I'm the guy. All right. So we're going to lunch. And by the time lunch is over, we're going to sell Pete on showing up at the PM Grow Summit. It's I'm coming up here in April in Very Austin. Very exciting. It's going to be awesome.